One of the first controversial moves the Ayatollah Khamenei made after taking power in 1979 was forcing women to wear the hijab. He announced this drastic law March 7th, the day before International Women's Day. Many of the women who organized alongside the clerics to oust the Shah didn't take too well to that. Yesterday's demonstration was the nearest thing to an anti-Khamenei rally yet. The imposition of Islamic law here has started with an order to women to cover their heads in government offices. Many are furious. Only a minority in Tehran already follow the instruction. But the issue has provided an escape valve for many of the men here who for days have been spoiling for trouble. Led by a few Islamic zealots, several hundred men eventually attacked the protesters. Several of the women who stood their ground with considerable courage were stabbed as they chanted slogans for equal rights. Women were a huge part of the 1979 movement as well, of the 79 uh, revolution in Iran. And they were part, you know, they were sort of shoulder to shoulder with men chanting for the downfall of the Pahlavi regime. That's Nahid Samdust, a professor of media and Middle Eastern studies at the University of Texas, Austin, and the author of Soundtrack of the Revolution, The Politics of Music in Iran. She's a media studies scholar who focuses on the intersection of politics and culture in Iran, including women's resistance movements. She's gonna break down these recent protests and how women have been leading the resistance against oppressive leadership in Iran for decades, even before the Shah was installed in 1953. And yet when the revolution succeeded and uh, Ayatollah Khomeini ultimately sort of as, as its leader took the helm, he said initially, not long after taking power, that women should have to, you know, wear the hijab in at least office buildings and sort of official places. And right after there was a huge women's march in, in March of 1979 against this edict and women came out on force and um, said, you know, what is this? Like we 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 were on the streets for independence and liberation and you're calling basically for our subjugation. And unfortunately, at the time, the notion of independence from foreign powers was, uh, you know, this anti-imperialist post-colonial movement was so overwhelmingly part of the independence struggle and of the revolution that uh, women were told, uh, th that's not so important. Let's not derail the revolution by, by bringing up these issues of, you know, whatever it is, like your hijab. And that's not important. That's just a piece of cloth on your head. And let's just let it rest. And so at the time when women came out on the streets, they didn't really get the backing of these uh, incredibly powerful political organizations who had just brought down one of the most powerful militarily strong regimes in the entire world, right? Mohammed Reza Pahlavi, was armed to the teeth by the United States, like uh, like you know Saudi Arabia of today, which is like the pillar of you know of of American stability in the in the region. Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, uh, Pahlavi's Iran was another country like that um, back then, and so and still they brought they managed to bring it down, and yet they didn't stand side by side with the women who had fought alongside men for their liberation of Iran. The Iranian revolution wasn't merely a movement run by disgruntled religious zealots, as some media coverage suggests. It was a broad coalition of people with diverse political views, many of them women who did much of the organizing against the brutality of the Shah. Manu Jalali, a lawyer in Tehran at the time, was one of them. She told the CBC that there was a remarkable show of solidarity and courage amongst the protesters, 
A turning point came when the Shah unleashed an army on the crowds, killing more than 100 people. The unrelenting violence further fueled the protesters' resolve to see an end to the Shah's rule. But Jalali said progressive activists underestimated the organization of the clergy who are seeking a far more conservative break from the Shah. They wanted a theocracy. More and more, men would ask women in the streets to cover their heads. The Ayatollah officially took power in February of 1979 and declared victory. The revolution replaced one extremist for another. His attack on political opposition, minorities, and women's rights started within weeks of taking power. Women were hoping the revolution would help Iran become more democratic, but the extreme religious activists of the protesters prevailed. Jalali said the clergy hijacked it and deceived many people. There's a historian called Nasir Mohajir who, alongside another person, really writes about, you know, they, they conducted lots of interviews with the women who were active at the time. And in their interviews and in their sort of introduction to it, they posed this very simple question, which is just so fundamental to thinking about today, which is what would have happened if in 1979 men equal to women have had realized the importance of backing the women and their demand not to be subjugated? What kind of Iran would, would we be looking at today? Right. It wouldn't have been an Islamic Republic that had managed to um, enforce all kinds of restrictions uh, on women, uh, withdraw all kinds of laws that would that benefited them, that the Shah had instituted in the 1960s through the white revolution, whether it was in, you know, marriage and uh, custody and political rights and this and that. What kind of Iran would we be looking at today if in at that crucial moment people had realized what the woman life freedom movement today shows us, which is. That, you know, unless there is liberation for women, there won't be liberation for the rest of the population either. Right. Um, when there's liberate, when there's subjugation of women, there's also subjugation of the rest of the population. That is a repressive authoritarian regime. And so, um, yeah, 43 years later, uh, we've we've come full circle. In this episode of Liberating Iran, he will walk us through the history of Iranian women's liberation as well as explain the role of music, in which women are legally not allowed to perform as solo artists. She'll break down how hip-hop music is fighting the power in Iran, as it has with Black people here in the United States. Most importantly, Nahid will help us understand that women's resistance predates the Shah and any Western influence. The hijab has roots predating the Prophet Muhammad and the culture around wearing it varies across the Islamic world. It's common to quote the Quran as justification for requiring women to wear it. Islamic feminists say clerics quote the Quran to justify their domination over women. To be clear, many religions led by men quote holy texts in a manner that subjugates women including Christian leaders who quoted the Holy Bible to oppress minorities. There are at least 50 nations around the world in which Islam is the most commonly practiced religion and they all have different rules around the hijab. Iran is very strict though, but it wasn't always like that. It's easy to assume Iranian women started unveiling, or at least attempted to, during the Shah, but that's not correct. Iranian activist and poet Fatima Baraghani 
better known as Tahiri, took the bold step of unveiling in the mid-19th century and was executed as a result. Reza Shah Pahlavi, whose reign began in 1925, encouraged a more relaxed stance on head garments. One of the most popular feminist activists in Iran at the time, Siddique Dalatabadi, appeared unveiled in public in 1928. That same year, the Shah's wife, Queen Taj Omaluk, visited a shrine during her pilgrimage in the city of Qom, wearing a veil that didn't completely cover her head. This pissed off a cleric who took exception to her breaking social norms, but the Shah wouldn't stand for anybody disrespecting his wife. He found that cleric and gave him a serious beatdown. The Queen of Afghanistan, Sawaya Tarji, appeared unveiled in public with the Shah during her official visit in Iran, also in 1928. The clergy protested and asked the Shah to tell the foreign queen to cover up, but he rebuffed their calls. This led to rumors that the Shah was planning to get rid of veils altogether, but that didn't happen until eight years later. In 1936, the Shah issued a decree banning all Islamic veils. It was designed to promote European dress and gender equality. He borrowed this from the Turks, who were modernizing from the days of the Ottoman Empire that fell after World War I. Enforcement of this decree, though, it was really severe. Law enforcement physically removed veils from women who defied the order and beat them if they refused to comply. A lot of women simply stayed home to avoid the abuse of the police, and some even committed suicide. Men weren't spared either. The Shah ordered them to wear European-style bowler hats in the summer of 1935, and that led to large non-violent demonstrations in July of that year. Now, the Imperial Army came back violently. Between 100 and 500 people were killed, including women and children. So the decree got mixed reviews in Iranian society. Most of the leading feminists of the time actually backed the ban, like Khadija Afzal Vazari and Sadiqe Dalatabadi campaigned for it. What's important to note is that many of these feminists and women's groups supporting the ban came from elite families whose values lined up with the Shah one way or the other. There was also another camp of feminists who supported unveiling, but not necessarily the decree. You see the difference? Back in Turkey, Ataturk didn't enforce a ban. He simply encouraged women not to wear the veil. Some historians also argue that the unveiling process would have gone better had it not been enforced by a man. For instance, if the Shah just simply allowed women to push forward themselves. Rules around the veil were relaxed under the next Shah, Reza Shah Pahlavi's son, Mohammed Reza Pahlavi. He was like, all right, all right, look, my, my dad was tripping, my bad. How about I just loosen some of these restrictions and y'all can have at it. That's where all these photos from the 1960s and 70s of women wearing miniskirts walking alongside of other women in veils come from. So, when you really get down into the weeds of Iranian history, you'll find one common thread between the Shah and the last two supreme leaders of Iran, a lack of choice. You also learn that much of the monarchy's problems came from having their heads up their asses with their Eurocentric tendencies that didn't reflect the will of the people. His brutal practice of unveiling gave the perception that wearing one was backwards in the clerics who made it seem like any women who refused to wear one was loose and unholy. 
But the thing about the hijab from my view is that Islamic states aren't the only ones who have been obsessed with head garments. Germany, France, Amsterdam, and other European countries have passed laws targeting what women wear on their heads and their bodies. So for example, you have the burqa or the niqab that's been targeted. It's pretty ironic if you think about it. We in the West with our so-called freedom of choice and speech love to cherry pick which choices people get to make. And rightfully so, women in these states hit the streets protesting the laws until politicians caught some sense in either abandoned or adjusted the proposed laws from their original intent. Now he told me that the West has often misreported the story of the hijab in the Muslim world, adding their own stereotypes to a narrative that didn't need any more of them. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the West has, you know, traditionally and historically just focused way too much on the hijab and on, you know, this notion of Westerners needing to come, the, you know, by the famous saying by Gayatri Spivak of white men saving brown women from brown men, right? Um, we saw this in post-Afghanistan invasion where Laura Bush made a very sort of explicit statement about saving the women of Afghanistan. And of course, a lot of emphasis has been on the hijab. And so, unfortunately, this actually has led for many, many years, leftists, you know, feminists, uh, whether inside or outside of Iran, to be kind of hesitant to really comment on the hijab and to kind of view it as a secondary matter. And so for many, many years in post-revolutionary Iran, um, you know, Iranian feminists would say, well, the hijab is not the most important thing. We have to tackle other more substantial issues such as marriage rights, divorce rights, custody rights, legal rights in court over property and testimony and all of that and, and political rights. And so, you know, this this fixation by the West on the liberation of women had this uh, sort of detrimental, if you will, sort of consequence on the on the on the view of southern uh as in like global south sort of feminists uh, as far as the hijab was concerned so that you know people who were campaigning for the freedom to take off the hijab were oftentimes sort of belittled if you will saying you know you're just playing into the hands of the neoconservatives in the u.s of the warmongers and this is not an issue Gina Masa Amini's death sparked these current protests, but her brother says she was no activist and was a shy girl and interested in politics. She was born September 21st, 1999, to a Kurdish family in Sagaz, Kurdistan province in northwestern Iran, where most of the country's ethnic Kurds stay. Masa was her official Persian given name, but her family called her Gina, her Kurdish name. Her dad works for a government organization and her mom manages the house. At the time of her death, Masa had just been admitted to university. She wanted to become a lawyer. The morality police pulled over the car she was in with her family September 13th and accused her of violating the country's headscarf laws. She was taken to a detention center where she received training on hijab rules. Authorities claim she collapsed from a heart attack and claim her death was connected to brain issues stemming from her childhood. She died on September 16th in a hospital in Tehran. Her family and other witnesses say that the authorities are lying and that the police beat Masa in their patrol car on the way to the detention center. Her father claims that he wasn't allowed to see her body, but said that he saw a glimpse of her bruised foot. The Associated Press 
said that she died from heavy blows to the head. Demonstrations started in Masa's hometown the next day following her funeral, but spread across Iran to as many as 80 cities with most protests in Tehran. Iranian social media shows Iranian women are burning hijabs and cutting their hair in public and on social media as a means of standing in solidarity with Masa. Police in turn have responded with the very brutality that previous governments under the Shah used when the people resisted the state's oppressive edicts. Law enforcement has even resorted to sexual violence against protesters. CNN reports that at least 12 people they've spoken to have reported being sexually assaulted while detained. One of them includes a young boy. Media access inside the country is severely restricted, so CNN's crew went to the region near Iraq's border with Iran, where they conducted the interviews. Some of the victims told the news outlet that their assaults were video recorded and used as blackmail to silence them. They come out and, you know, there's a lot of shame um, around actually revealing it. But we we have other reports ex uh, aside from the CNN report where we know that, um, you know, there's been both rape and sexual abuse of very young people, uh, children, some of them teenagers. And of course, most of the, a lot of the violence is meted out against Iran's Kurdish population because that's where some of the greatest resistance has taken place. Also against the Baluchis in the southeast of the country. So, you know, it's been the minorities who've taken the brunt of the, 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 the violence and the finite violence, right? The, most of the people who've been killed have also been from those regions. And of course, the reports of sexual violence in the prisons is harrowing and absolutely uh, criminal. And um, the Iranian government should be taken to task for that. Nahid was born in Iran a couple of years before the revolution. She spent much of her childhood hiding in basements during bombings. But it wasn't all grim. She enjoyed herself dancing at parties, a very prominent feature of Iranian life. People gathering with family and friends and just having a good old time together. It's not something you would necessarily know being in the West because the images we get about Iran and Iranians are always so one-sided and they're, you know, that's not the part that, that gets represented. So it wasn't really particular to me. It was just, you know, during the war, I think Iranians just found a way to keep that space safe, that space in which they all felt safe with each other, um, you know, exhibiting uh, joyful human emotions, uh, having parties. And uh, so, but, you know, during the 80s, I was going to, to, to school in Iran. And what that meant was this was a new revolutionary state. It was a, an Islamic state that wanted to reshape the form of society wholesale. So from pre-revolutionary Iran, which had a very sort of Western and secular tendency toward uh, an Islamic society where the state really cared to make sure its citizens lived uh, by that particular creed. And so the incursions were not just in the public sphere. They weren't just, you know, in schools and universities and on the streets and in buses. The state's agents uh, did raid homes where they believed uh, to be you know, alcohol consumption or mixed gender mingling and dancing and all of that. So it, it, was, a, it, was, a, it was a pretty, um, you know, sort of drastic change of life for most Iranians who had kept their private spheres quite sacred uh, without, you know, and, and to have then a state tell them precisely how they were to live. Iranians managed to find ways to live their lives the way they wanted to eventually, and even throughout the 80s. And I think that's the part that is most sort of prominent in my mind. 
Um, but uh, I also remember sort of, you know, going to school and being told that I needed to wipe the fingernail polish off or not to wear, you know, tight jeans or any of these things. I mean, there was strict controls as to how you could dress and, and needing to do ablutions in school in the cold winter outside on the cold sort of water um, faucets and to do prayers and all of that. But, you know, as children, the parts we remember are the fun parts. Towards the end of the war, her family moved to Germany where she finished high school. From there, Nahid studied political science at Bernard College and picked up a master's degree in international affairs from Columbia. Then 9-11 happened. She decided to move to the Middle East and work as a reporter for five years. She eventually switched tracks and started a PhD program at the University of Oxford, where she specialized in Middle East studies. Seven years ago, she moved to New York to teach at NYU, then Yale, and then Harvard. She's currently a professor at the University of Texas, Austin, where she teaches courses on the intersection of feminism and music, a key feature of these protests. What makes Nahid uniquely qualified to talk about the protests and music is her own upbringing. Simply dancing and singing is a revolutionary act in Iran, something she and her family did whenever they could. Had they been caught, they would have felt the full force of the state. Nahid told me that some of the most prominent musicians arrested during the protests have been hip-hop artists. It makes sense, right? The age of the average Iranian is 31, and he says that it's the most popular form of music. All music requires a permit by the Iranian government, and rap never got one. If all Iranian rappers rhyme like Tumaj Salehi, it's easy to understand why. He's arguably the most popular rapper in Iran. His raps highlight political corruption and shames the regime's apologists who whitewash its crimes. He was arrested last October and charged with Mohabe, a crime which translates into warring against God under Sharia law. He was recently sentenced to six years in prison, avoiding the death penalty, which is a real possibility when he was initially charged. But he's been a very outspoken um, musician, really speaking the you know, the some of the demands that people would express on social media that was known to everybody, but nobody would dare explicitly put out there who still lived in Iran. And what made Tumaj Salehi very unique was that he was a rapper who was in Iran and still dared, had the courage to, uh, you know, create these tracks where he already a year before, you know, this movement said, go find yourself some rat holes because people are coming for you. Your days are over. This is, you're not going to be able to continue um, treating people like this and running the country like this. Um, and so, you know, the, the most explicit music certainly has been, and also the most prophetic. If you look at, if you look at Tumaj Salehi's tracks, it's astounding now. And there isn't that much conversation about this, but, um, you know, it's astounding what, that how, to what extent he was foreseeing or sort of foretelling what would what would happen ultimately in you know in the fall of 2022. 
you know, we have seen in the slogans and chants of the people on the streets, the sentiment reflected where they're chanting, um, you know, death to this uh, child killing regime. Um, and so we see reverberations both in the music and in the statements of somebody like Salehi, the sentiments that are out there on the street. And he's become such an outspoken and important champion of the people that I don't think the Islamic Republic can execute too much Salehi. You know, I think if it does that, I mean, it will just cause another, I think, uprising and revolution uh, to occur because there's certain people whose 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 killing creates more of a of a problem for this for the regime than others, right? Saman Yassin, a 24 year old Kurdish rapper who participated in a protest and rhymes against the state, was also arrested and may also face execution. So is fellow hip hop artist Barad Ali Kanari. Regardless of these rappers' popularity, they aren't making much money from their art. The Ministry of Culture and Islamic Guidance has to approve every single track and album that's published in Iran. Without it, artists can't sell records officially or give concerts, which makes it impossible to make a living. But the internet does allow performers to reach their audiences. Tamaj's team still posts content on his IG account to his 500,000 plus followers while he's behind bars. When it comes to female performers, they aren't allowed to sing solo under any circumstances. They can sing in choirs or even as a duel, but never alone. Sapide Jandahi, a famous Iranian singer, told the Center for Human Rights in Iran that female singers are prohibited from holding solo concerts for female-only audiences in most parts of Iran, except Tehran and a few other cities, even though no law explicitly bans them from doing so. If the location is not an obstacle, then the financial burden is. Jandaki says it's too expensive to hold a concert for a female-only audience that's not really worth it. It's hard enough to sell tickets for a normal concert, let alone one just for women. She and other female performers usually end up having to pay all the costs out of pocket. They can't advertise the concerts anywhere except on Instagram and Telegram she said. The musicians have to be women too. Photographers and videographers are also banned, so she can't even film her own shows. During a talk at Harvard in December of 2020, Nahid presented some research for an upcoming book that outlines Ayatollah Khamenei's approach to music after taking power in 1979. This is from her talk. So the state seems to be at an impasse, considering that policymaking bodies within the Islamic Republic of Iran since the foundation of the state in 1979 have been able to use the policy of maslahat expediency to allow for all kinds of music that were at first banned. So do a 180 completely on pop music, for example, which was banned for 20 years and then allowed. Why are they unable to apply the same principle to female solo singing? even in the presence of the jurisprudence of the Supreme Leader himself, which does not categorically forbid the solo female voice. The Islamic Republic's core mission from the start was to augur a new dawn, a cultural revolution, one that created a Muslim polity tied at the core in the interpretation of the ulama who sat at the helm to the control over the social, especially the female um, body, and the kinds of vices that could arise if this body was not disciplined. 
The women singers I've discussed are a far cry from the Pahlavi era pop stars and sex symbols. Their dress, their mode of uh, singing, their comportment are all within the gender conforming framework of the state. Even when these women sing outside of Iran, the majority uh, will wear some kind of headgear or headscarf um, in order to conform to regulations back at home and avoid getting into trouble when they go back. But as Eileen Hayes and other feminist scholars have observed, the voice is a metaphor for vocality, cultural agency, political autonomy, and the solo singing voice offers a raw, unmasked, naked presence of significance. Or as Simon Firth has uh, written, the voice is the sound of a body. It seems particularly expressive of the body. In its denial of the solo female voice, these regulations deny the expression of autonomy of the female body. Women in Iran can sing, sing publicly in choirs or even in duos, just not solo. As one of the musicians whom I interviewed told me, there always has to be the preposition ko, co-singing, uh, co-performing. In Persian, it's ham. It has to be ham khani. It can't just be one woman sing, sort of projecting herself solo. The linkage between voice and body can be quite literal. It appears that the solo female voice is increasingly viewed in the same category as hijab. This is something that these vocalists were told in their interrogations. One singer was told, if we allow you to sing, um, quote, if we allow you to sing, next thing we know, women are going to take greater liberties and we will see licentiousness on and off stage. It appears the issue of singing is viewed as a gateway to cultural corruption and is hence securitized by state organs. Indeed, because of movements for because the movements for greater rights for women have accelerated over these last four or five years, um, if the movement for greater women's rights gets such momentum um, that it's um, you know that it starts to directly threaten the status quo, I wonder whether the the policy of maslahat of expediency will serve to give women those rights to ensure the survival um, of the state, or. That's one way of thinking about it. Or with its revolutionary ideology long dissipated and its security apparatus strong, is control over women's voices and bodies the most feasible and the most visible way to enforce its raison d'etre as an Islamic state? Some of the younger musicians I interviewed were hopeful and believed that one way or another, this ban would be lifted in the next 10 years. They believed the social force was simply too strong. On the other hand, 70-year-old Paddy Saw, Iran's most accomplished vocalist, whom I mentioned earlier, said in response to this question, quote, they will never allow women to sing because it would be a denial of their own existence, end quote. However this unfolds, the problem of women's solo singing provides an incisive window onto the interplay of the various forces, including women's decade-long struggles to create space for their voices, the impact of social media permeation on these processes, and how an aging revolutionary state balances its interests versus its anxieties of survival. Thank you. Basically, local officials took matters into their own hands and decided to enforce an unofficial ban on solo female singing. So when you see women on the streets, they're committing a revolutionary act. They know the power of their voice, and so does the state. The violence with which they're responding speaks to their fear. Masa may not have been political, but her death back in September and the meaning behind it certainly is. It's also forcing an awakening in Iranian society. 
that the oppression of women ultimately leads to the oppression of everyone. Mahmoud Amari Mohadam, director of the NGO Iran Human Rights, told Time Magazine that people from all backgrounds are protesting for fundamental rights and that he's never seen so much anger before and that this movement isn't just about women's rights or about getting the hijab laws taken off the books. It's about the harsh realities of living under authoritarianism. Another activist Time interview said that people should not focus on the hijab because Massad's death affects everybody. What happened to her can and has happened to men who've expressed a thought or an idea that challenges the state. He said, and I quote, the men are fighting for their sisters and their mothers and their daughters, and they don't want this for them either. This, he told Time Magazine. Nahid still has family back home, and she worries about them. Her young cousins, many of them in their 20s, are just like everybody else in the world at their age, just trying to figure out their life and their place in the world. Strict U.S. sanctions keep Western products from entering the country, as well as making it almost impossible for people to leave, and that doesn't make the process any easier. The grievances of these protesters who are hitting the streets today are very similar to those who protested the Shah back in 1979. Back then, folks got tired of the state's intolerance to self-expression, just as people today are exhausted from decades of state control under the supreme leader. Women may have had the right to unveil during the Shah's reign, but they resented the unchallenged imperial control the West had over him and society at large. What Nahid and so many Iranians are hoping for now is that the movement will aim for everybody's liberation and not make the mistakes of the past and subjugate women to the very oppression that they were protesting to overcome. But I think what really happened with this, you know, with the woman life freedom movement is that Iranian women themselves came out on the street to say, this is the point at which we completely realize that our subjugation, you know, the, the symbol of our subjugation is the hijab. And as long as we don't have free choice over the hijab, we won't have free choice over anything. And as long as we are subjugated, the rest of the population too will be subjugated. But I think it, we've now come to a point where, you know, Iranian feminists, and especially the, the, the women on the streets have shown to us that as a matter of fact, the hijab is important. And it's not that Iranian women are asking not to wear the hijab, they're asking to have the choice. Thank you for listening to the third episode of Liberating Iran. Hope you've been enjoying the series so far. Financial support comes from Plowshares Fund, which has been very supportive of this project. We also want to thank Outrider Foundation, which supports multimedia storytelling about nuclear threats and climate change. Learn more at outrider.org. And shout out to Nahid for helping us with fact-checking this episode as well. We've used lots of news videos and articles to make this story happen. Some of the sources come from the New York Times, Washington Post, ABC News, just to name a few. And we use Wikipedia 
as a guide that led us to the articles and academic papers that back up the Wikipedia page entries. Music used in the episode comes from the Jana Ensemble, from their performance on Persian Sounds of Canada, Tumaj Salehi, the rapper, and Surude Barabari. Please go and buy Nahid's book, Soundtrack of the Revolution, The Politics of Music in Iran. Next week's episode will feature Yegi and Jason Rezaian, who will talk about the role of media in Iran and their story of being imprisoned in the country on false charges of espionage. Jason's story is well known, so Yegi will be the primary subject of episode four and discuss her behind the scenes role in helping to secure Jason's freedom and how this impacted her life personally and professionally. Talk to you next week.